Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Today is November 19th, 2017, and we are discussing part two of Stealing Fire, a book by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. This part of the book deals with the four forces of ecstasis. Those are psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology. And it talks a little bit about demystifying these uh, experiences through the development of, of uh, technology and science uh, and new approaches. And uh, I don't know, this is like a, a very meaty section of the book, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I think Brad hit the nail on the head saying this is kind of like the academic section of the book as it tries to tie these four forces into uh, this idea of demystifying mystical experiences and uh, and sort of the democratization of, of this knowledge and sort of the, the open sourcing. And there's a great quote at the beginning of the book, uh, the beginning of the chapter uh, that says, this sharpened perspective allows us to strip out the interpretations of past gatekeepers and understand in simple and rational terms the mechanics of transcendence. So I think that that kind of sums up very well what these four chapters is, is about. And, uh, and like we said, there's this overarching theme of kind of getting away from these gatekeepers of knowledge and sort of democratizing and, and opening knowledge up to uh, the rest of the population. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. It's like making it accessible. And there's a few parts like that talk about the language in particular, or even the information um, and, and, and its accessibility. And this is, you know, when we talk about it going away from the gatekeepers more towards the democratization of not just the information, but, you know, practices and substances themselves. This is, to me, one of the more uh, optimism, optimism inspiring trends, uh, compared to like centuries prior where, you know, the whole idea of Prometheus being punished for stealing fire in the first place is predicated on the idea that the people aren't ready for this. Um, and a lot of what this section of the book talks about is maybe not everyone's ready, but we're definitely heading in the direction of having, I think the section around Sasha Shulgin and how, you know, him, creating and synthesizing all of these substances and his immediate reaction was I have to share this with everyone and so he wrote those books and and you know kind of put it out there to uh, sort of not make it possible that some pharmaceutical company could profit off it you know could control that information and then use it in a very uh, directed specific um, gaining way the uh, the DA wasn't very happy about that, by the way. <laughs> that, actually, that was really interesting. How at first they were they didn't you yeah know, everything he was doing was out in the open, and he didn't have to be secretive because he was helping the DEA. He was like a big he he was like a resource for them. But yeah, you're right. You know, once they kind of once he put it on the street, and there's people cooking this stuff up all over the place, they're like, ooh, that's yeah. You know, I, I it's it, I. It, Gives you the, the feeling that they, they thought that, you know, he was only going to share it with them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like they were kind of offended, you know, it. right. 
Yeah, and they and the example is they started finding the, the, uh, the you know the books in labs, uh, you know, actually cooking up the drugs. So that's uh, that's when the tables turned, I guess, and and they started to. Uh, well, they gave him some trouble. I mean, they raided his lab and and they took away his Schedule One license and and. Uh, you know, it's just, that's the thanks we get. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he's a real hero for sharing all that knowledge, you know, publishing it so that it could yeah. not be kept under wraps. Yeah. Not allowing further gatekeeping of the information, but, uh, but I did find it kind of interesting that they, they kept watching him for the rest of his life. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a point where it's like you were watching kind of this old man and his wife, you know, yeah. around their house for years and years and years of just unbelievable supervision. I mean, he'd already published the information. I mean, there were two books out there with basically everything he knew. Right. What more could yeah. he do? Like what, what, how much of a threat <laughs> was he at, uh, what, you know, he died at, uh, what, 80, 90 something years old. So mm-hmm. yeah, at that point, um, right. Uh, you know, maybe they could have devoted those resources to, uh, something else, you know, healthcare or something, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's a great example of disintermediation, like just putting, you know, he's, he's a scientist uniquely qualified to discover this information. And, you know, not not only did he pursue that path, but he also did document everything he did and published it for all the world to just have access to, you know, pretty much freely as opposed to, you know, keeping it for himself and, you know, I don't know, you know, someone else might synthesize these things and sell them or somebody might, um, you know, just keep the information like, you know, to maybe patent the drugs to, to sell to a pharmaceutical company or any number of other pathways to, um, to financial success. But he, he put it out there as just a, uh, you know, a, a way of disintermediating access to these, these compounds. And he was largely successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. Another, we, we briefly mentioned like language also is something that's evolving. And there was a point, I think in chapter four, where they, they talked about the religious uh, aspects of throughout history. Religion has always been a very hierarchical, um, but also rooted in ceremony. And a part that I kind of blew my mind was they're talking about the whole uh, communion component of church right. and how there's this sort of culminating moment. And in Latin, they would say, um, hoc, est corpus, which is, this is the body. And there, there's a, an author, Archbishop, um, Tillotson, uh, who said in all probability, hocus pocus is nothing else, but a corruption of the hoc est corpus. This is the body. And that I just, that's just way too entertaining. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's <just> incredible. <laughs> right. Especially, especially since like, you know, if, if maybe going to mass nowadays is kind of hard to imagine. And I, the numbers on, you know, in Western countries of, of mass attendance is are extremely low. Um, imagine in those days, I mean, they were talking about medieval times where people were going to mass, you know, a hundred percent of people were going to mass every Sunday and listening to a mass in a language they didn't speak right. or understand for that matter. So yeah, it's kind of funny that the, the, the only remnant of that is, is sort of this expression, which gets translated into this kind of like goofy magic word. <laughs> right. The only thing they could remember. Well, that, that one part of mass, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, I went to mass as a kid, um, you know, uh, regretfully, but, um, I was dragged along there <laughs> that, and I that was remember, the fun part. I, I remember it was like literally one big yawn. Like I just could not <laughs> stop yawning like through the entire thing. And I don't know if it was because it was very stuffy in that church. Like there weren't really like windows open to the outside world, but, 
Um, you know, and, and, but, and it was like really boring, but they talk about how, you know, during this mass in another language, um, people would be just as bored as probably I was as a kid. Um, but during this one time, this, this, that piece you mentioned, Brad, where they, you know, it's the, whatever the like transformation of the, you know, this like inert kind of, uh, you know, unleavened bread host thing, uh, to becoming actually whatever, uh, a piece of Christ's body or something, you know, that's like supposed to Didn't be the that most gross magical, you out, by the way, yeah, right. I don't want to eat that. It grossed <laughs> me out when I was a kid, like, like hardcore grossed me out. I'm like, I don't want to eat fresh. Right. Exactly. And it's also like this weird, like, uh, not a it, nice thing to do to Jesus. It tastes like paper too. You know, it's just like, it doesn't have any taste. <laughs> But during that one part of mass, you know, that's supposed to be the most special, like sacred part where, you know, where this, this mm-hmm. like magical transformation is taking place. And, um, I, I've been to mass like a couple times recently for like a wedding or a funeral. And I've noticed they have this like really loud bell. It's like the entire mass is this kind of like, taking place at that like volume level. And then all of a sudden there's this bell and it's just like, you know, it's very loud and it's just very jarring. And it occurred to me they're incorporating more like special effects than, than they did when I was a kid. Although I don't know if this is depending on your, the church you go to or something like that, but it's right at that moment, that hocus pocus moment, they, they ring all these bells and it's this like, you know, it's magical like the, experience. It's the, di- it's the dinner bell, man. It's time, it's time, <laughs> it's time to, to eat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll take some more it's, wine. Can I, have, can, I have two, can I have two, can have two servings of wine and no flesh? <laughs> Is that an option? I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) But, sir, the wine is blood. Oh. Okay, I'll still take it. It tastes better than the the flesh. I I do remember uh, thinking it was kind of, uh, I don't know, hypocritical that they were, you know, as a teenager telling us not to drink all the time. And then I got wine every time I I went to church, which I stopped doing as soon as it was under. I was able to make that decision myself. But I do remember being like, oh, yes, it's the wine time. The, the moment uh, at which you reached, in George Carlin's words, the uh, age of reason, right? <laughs> yeah. I used to be an Irish Catholic until I reached the age of reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the whole uh, Pavlovian aspect of the bell and right. the host and that, it, it also seems uh, like the, the incorporation, the multimedia incorporation in the church setting is something that the the seventh chapter in the book all about technology kind of gets into and i i'd be interesting to go to one of these mega churches that they have today to see really how far they extend that the multimedia aspect um because as as you read about this guy tony andrews who started this speaker company um function one out of the uk and how their function one speakers are, are just now ubiquitous and all of like the major clubs around the world and how he's really kind of dialed in how a speaker can sort of create a feeling of uh, musical transcendence. And uh, I imagine if this guy existed hundreds of years ago and and he had uh, that idea that his venue would be the church. I mean, the church was always the center of art. Um, It was the center of music. It was the center of all of those things. And so the technology aspects that we're seeing these days and that the book talks about, you know, it it seems like a natural uh, fit. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when I was about the about the church part too, and and I kind of about the communion. It's like, it's sort of like the lowest tech version possible of, you know, of, of an altered state and sort of creating a ritual around it, you know. And it's something that obviously, you know, in when there were I don't know, life was a little bit simpler. It was probably uh, stood above kind of the the normal pace of things, 
but uh, but definitely, I think if you look at those things now, they just it's just you know the gap has widened so much between like what else is available for uh, you know sort of reaching these states of mind, and then you know what kind of organized religion is still peddling. I remember talking to uh, uh, Earth and Fire Airwood. I remember um, Earth mentioned uh, electroceuticals. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah, yeah. It, it's it was like the ability to um, basically like record the experience of taking a psychedelic or or any substance, like record the patterns that the brain uh, experiences uh, on the substance, and then somehow like play those patterns back using you know electrodes or whatever other means, and it, it basically inducing the same experience in in the participant. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can see basically like synthesizing you know any of these things into like a technological you know uh, method. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that part too. In, in terms of like how it uh, kind of uh, meshes with psychology, and they talked about how how useful all of these things will be in terms of uh, of helping people and sort of, you know, psych, sort of a psychoanalysis or as an alternative, it's because it's so difficult to get to someone's actual problem by talking to them, it, just sort of the, the reporting self and, and kind of the, the, the lack of information or sort of the, the wrong information that, uh, that you will, you know, consciously communicate to another person when you're, when you're, uh, you know, having trouble for one reason or another, whereas like your, your body in all these other ways is giving off information that's a lot more accurate. Mm-hmm. I guess from experiences in life of friends who have, you know, suffered from some sort of psychological problem, it just seems like every time it just seems like uh, conventional psychology takes such a long time to do anything if it does anything at all. Yep. Another thing that came to mind on the the pseudicals front, like pharmaceuticals or digitus, I can't remember the term. Electroceuticals. Uh, electroceuticals. I saw a headline in the news over the past week around, uh, a, they referred to it as the, the first digital prescription, and it caught my eye. And in reading about it, it kind of reminded me a part of this book. But the, the what they were talking about is how there's like an implant you can get that can balance um, a certain, I don't know, like stomach acid or something, but you can like control it with an app on your phone. So it's like an implant that instead of like taking a drug and having it go through your GI system, it's like a a very small implant that you can digitally control its effects um, consciously. And it reminded me of a part of the book that that was really fascinating um, in the section, the molecules of desire talking about how they're using this guy is able to, Cronin is his name, is how he's using 3D printers to print pharmaceutical drugs. Hmm. And how, you know, yeah. he, he says almost all drugs are made from simple molecules like carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And, you know, all, like, you can use simple ingredients to do that. And when, it, in terms of democratizing information and democratizing access to things like Advil or ibuprofen, um, much less more complicated illnesses and how they're they're treated. That that seemed to me really fascinating. That I feel like big pharma is not not looking out for all of our best interests. And the idea of being able to like download a prescription on your computer and then like print out your cancer drugs on your home printer seems to me to be like one of the most powerful paradigm shifts. Um, that that could be happening over the next 10, 20 years. It also made me think that I I know what to get you like next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah no that, that definitely is a fascinating idea it, it it seems like you know the the one thing is like where you know where what would be the origin of of those prescriptions and sort of you know it would kind of democratize the production aspect of it but what about you know the the sort of like the research and access to you know the actual prescriptions themselves and you know that part i i didn't quite get and the idea of of 3d printing in that respect that while it seems very cool it also seems a little bit uh a little bit scary you know i mean if we if like in terms of uh i don't know I, maybe on the one hand it would increase sort of the purity and the uh, you know, of illegal substances, but, uh, but, you know, if, if we're already having problems with, uh, with non-pure illicit drugs, imagine just a- any guy in his house with a 3d printer. Yeah. But the, I, I feel like with the internet, there's the, I think in this section of the book, they talked about how the democratization, democratization of information allows for that, che- those checks and balances mm. um, a little bit. There is a part in the book going back to religion a little bit where they they describe the scenario of um, the start of Mormonism. And then they also describe the origin of Judeo-Christian, like coming from Moses, about how Mm -hmm. this is a single person's account of a single event that everyone had to just believe. And how there's no way that could happen today. Like there's no way people would accept one person's accounting of something that seems so implausible. And that's been one of the the forces of the internet is like putting it out there. People are going to test it. People are going to like check it, and that for things to sort of take hold requires um, you know it to be it to resonate with people in a way in a lot of different parts of the world. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little naive, or maybe I'm hmm. worrying that you're on Merck's payroll or something. But <laughs> <laughs> also, I think I think these uh, this section of the book brought us or brings us back to one of uh, one of the discussions we've had several times on the show about um, s- sort of, you know, the, the, you know, is, is there some extra value in getting to certain states of mind through, you know, years of practice and meditation or, or is like, or is the shortcut, um, you know, just as valuable or perhaps valuable in a different way than the, than the other thing is, I mean, I think in my, in my own opinion, I, I, I think the shortcut is kind of the, the way to go, but, uh, but it also makes me think that, you know, it also depends on sort of the, um, the intention of the shortcut, because I, I also, there's a part of me that thinks reading this book that it's going to turn into like a, uh, you know, like a self-help gurus, you know, end all solution for like being the best version of yourself, you know, and well, obviously I think that, you know, there are possible benefits and, and things that you can uh, take out of that for your own self-improvement. I feel like it's sort of uh, the kind of the, I don't know, what, what is the intention that you have when you, when you're doing something like that? Because it could, I don't know, it could get very shallow, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like if, if you're just, you know, if your motivation is to, uh, you know, make, make more money or, yeah, um, you know, exactly. Yeah. Like I want to be the best to... businessman possible. Like right. that's, you know, would, are you willing to meditate two hours a day to do that? Probably not, but you know what I mean? So providing the shortcut, I mean, it kind of opens the door for that. Perhaps you go in with that intention and then, you you know, take a left turn somewhere and, and end up, uh, you know, in a completely different place. Maybe that, maybe that also happens. I don't know, but it definitely kind of popped up in my mind because I feel like there's, there's a certain like, um, capitalistic, uh, underlying to all of that, you know, and there's, there's, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like it, it would, it would be very, it would be very quick to happen. 
well, not to, not to jump ahead, maybe a little teaser for when we get to mm-hmm. part three of the book, but they do talk about this idea of uh, hedonistic calendaring and being very uh, honest about what you get out of each of these practices and, and what mm-hmm. your intention is for each and how much time it takes to invest in them in ways that'll help you get perspective of given what your intention is and given where you're at in your life or your journey or your project or whatever it is um, to kind of understand the arsenal of ways that you can kind of get to ecstasis um, and, and being thoughtful about it. Um, but certainly if you're, if you have a bad in, intention or if you have an intention that's kind of shallow to begin with, um, mm. of course, I think it's, it's natural or it's, it seems obvious but, that the shortcut wouldn't be as um, good for everyone. Sure. And it also, it kind of, I guess I kind of started having that feeling when I was also reading about uh, landmark, which is a sort of organization. Yeah. I know Joe and I've had this conversation a few times yeah. too, about kind of like what exactly is going on there? Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like a capitalistic cult. Any um, listeners who are part of it, write in, let us know. Yeah, We'd love please. to learn. I, I, I'd love some contrary information to, to tell you the truth. It's just from what I've heard in the very, you know, a few uh, stories I know of uh, people who uh, are part or have been part. Uh, I've just always gotten that feeling, and it kind of makes me think. It's like, so what? It, you know, not not only on the business side of things of sort of like spawning these t- sort of businesses that capitalize on uh, on this personal development craze. Um, you know, also what what are the intentions of the people going in? You know, if you if you're lured in by the, the the business aspect of it, you know, I don't know. It seems a little. A little sketchy in some way. Well, I mean, you know, capitalism is is one kind of like amplifier for for different movements. You know, you, you could have like, um, you know, the, these things be I don't know public services somehow. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and maybe there'd be a it could be possible to regulate it in different ways or, or something. But you know, there's no reason not to allow like private industry to. Um, you know, to, to capitalize on like the self-help movement, for example. And, and, you know, the consequence being a lot of people are uh, helped and some of them are helped in, you know, terms of capitalism, just, you know, in that self-referential way where, you know, they're going through this capitalistic kind of uh, motivated um, program and then they're, you know, they're, they're actually using it for, you know, similar, um, you know, benefits personally. Um, but I, I mean, if, if the entire, you know, human, if, if our entire culture sort of like is uplifted from a lot of people being introduced to these ideas that they wouldn't have had before, it just reminds me like uh, Rick Doblin talks about how, you know, the, the last time we kind of like were facing this, you know, I don't know, these types of crises and, um, you know, when, when it, like before MDMA was made illegal, before LSD was mm-hmm. made illegal, um, it, you know, it, these things were introduced to a culture that was not yet familiar with things like, um, meditation, yoga, uh, these were not widespread ideas. And so if you can, you know, however you expose the entire, you know, culture to these ideas, maybe it's providing a substrate, you know, inside of which you can kind of actually make some, you know, you can transform, uh, society somehow. Sure. Well, it, it and it definitely won't happen on a mass level unless it's done in conjunction with uh, capitalism. I think that's one of the best. Right. You know, one of the things Rick Doblin does the best is kind of sort of combine the two in a healthy way. Um, I guess I'm just worried about the, the degree to which that happens and sort of w- whether or not it will adulterate uh, the you know the experience itself or or at least the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. 
know, but, but you of, think how how do you why is that like why are you afraid it would it would taint the you know the experience somehow like I, I just think of like Elon Musk you know uh, you know flying mm-hmm. a rocket to space you know uh, now making a uh, you know the space program a private industry. Um, you know, he's sure. shuttling, you know, uh, people and, and equipment to the space shuttle that used to be a, you know, a, the endeavor of, of uh, NASA. Um, you know, why shouldn't a private, you know, uh, for-profit company, uh, you know, be, be on that task? I think that, you know, the world could stand to benefit just the same as if it's like a um, done for, you know, different motivations. Yeah, as long as they didn't have, as long as that company or or that handful of companies didn't have, you know, too much power over you know, the entire experience itself, you know, I mean, like, like, you know, sort of like we have nowadays with sort of like a handful of, uh, companies in, you know, pharma companies basically that dominate an entire sector and sort of, you know, when we talk about the, the, like the gatekeeping aspect, it's sort of like, we know that all of the medications we have will come from this one very small group of companies. Um, you know, and again, the kind of the point of the chapter is getting getting towards like democratizing those things, and that could be a counterforce to that. Sure. Yeah, one of the scary things about uh, capitalism that they highlight in this book well is how it can proliferate genres of mu- music like EDM. <laughs> 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 or there's there's a part in chapter ooh, I don't remember I think chapter four about the book 50 shades of gray and how it became insanely popular and sold like to beat the shit out of somebody it it sold so much but the the idea that it's not it's not really a good book like the writing's really terrible it's not yeah. you know but because it's like it's it's tapped into something that a lot of people are thinking or feeling and it's very accessible it like became one of the fastest selling books in history Hmm. Uh, I love this stat. It sold more copies on Amazon than all of the seven volume Harry Potter series combined. <laughs> well, I think J.K. Rowling knows what she needs to do in her next book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what it also, I mean, when you're reading this, don't you feel, um, I don't know. I feel like when I've had like a, an important experience like this, I don't want to say that there's something like uh, inherently anti-capitalist about the experience in and of itself but it is something that like it'll it'll it, it it'll take me away and when i come back and the you know sort of the first day you go back to work and the kind of the regular world it's like a little bit of a shock again and i just wonder if there you know is there i don't know it's a question to ask you guys is there is there something particularly um anti-capitalistic about the experience or or that something that se- kind of separates you from it uh and makes it hard hard to go back. Well, I think capitalism is is one of these like fundamental ideas that we find ourselves just like embedded in from before we mm-hmm. before we reach sure. the age of reason, and you know it's just sort of like a uh, uh, a foregone conclusion, or um, mm-hmm. it's just like this, this thing that it goes unquestioned because it's just so obvious, like that that's it's just yeah. understood there's, that there's, this no is, there's no alternative, right? right and this so. is just and and but like by definition, there's no alternative, and really the only mm-hmm. place I've ever discovered where you can. Uh, you know, aside from like camping for, for a few days or something, you know, where you're like off the grid, um, the only other experience really is Burning Man. And at mm-hmm. Burning Man, you can experience, you know, the absence of capitalism, but you can do it in a, in a, in a way where you actually have access to like many of the same resources mm-hmm. that you have, like in everyday life, you you know, you have a lot of people. Yeah, you I was going to say, experiences. 
it requires a lot of capitalism to get there. Yeah, right. It, which is the ironic thing in the whole, uh, you know, in, in the, it's like, like you're, you're like front loading your capitalism in order to live. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, non-capitalist for a week. <laughs> the, the most ironic thing about it is like that, that like necessary trip to Walmart at the beginning of Burning Man, yeah. you know, and it's like the only and time. It's not necessary. You can go elsewhere. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Make all your shit, man. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right. Um, yeah, but, but like, so like you have this, this, you know, this pervasive idea of capitalism is just like unquestioned and, and we're just like swimming inside this like soup of capitalism. And then you go to a different place and you have these experiences, whether you go to Burning Man or you have a psychedelic experience. Um, it's so shocking to come back into that day-to-day -day world because um, you've just, you've had your mind expanded to where you can actually consider other ideas and, um, you know, do things differently, maybe not have a nine to five job, you know, maybe just think like about ways you can, you know, go through other, life that other that ways not, of living, yeah, other ways of living, like as if that's such a hard well, and barrier also va to... value systems as well. Yeah. I I've been a really good friend of mine here. Um, who I've been getting to know is the first person I've ever known who has been an anarchist and can explain it decently well. And basically it's anti-capitalism. Like he's sure. very much like capitalism is the root of, a lot of what he doesn't like about the world that he sees and lives in and anarchism isn't the way I've learned about it is it's, it's kind of requires the most faith in human ability and intention compared to other beliefs because, um, it's like extremely left wing. It's like very, very, very left wing viewpoint of like beyond communism. Anarchism is, you know, it's like mm -hmm. we, we will be able to, like decentralized um, cooperation. Like exactly, exactly. Communism without the state. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been it's been interesting to kind of learn more about, and and uh, and he talks a lot about that, Joe. Like, although th th he doesn't refer to it in such delicious ways, but like the soup of capitalism, it's <laughs> <laughs> just like I'm, I'm ubiquitous. This ubiquity of the Western world, of certainly the United States, um, a lot of the developed world. Uh, has become so developed and advanced that it's re it's relied on what capitalism can do and how it can there there can be certain people within it like Elon Musk or kind of these visionary people who who are able to harness the the capital market to to do something really remarkable and uh, efficient um, compared to if it was done sort of collaboratively well, and collectively. Well, that's that's the question. I mean, like I think you know it, it, it's it's um... It's, it's a heartwarming when we see an example like that, like an Elon Musk. It's like sort of something that's great for for everyone that, that comes out of a private initiative and, and capitalism allowed that to happen. Uh, where, whereas normally I think we're inundated with the opposite type of example all the time. The question to me, though, is when you get even in an Elon Musk situation is like, will there be a point? Uh, you know, because right now, obviously, everything that, that, the comp that his company is doing is aligned with sort of like these principles around, um, you know, s sustainability and the environment, et cetera. That's, that's kind of like the, the need that has created that company. Right. But mm -hmm. where I find kind of the fault with the capitalistic system is that uh, as long as there's sort of this like blind, uh, shareholder system behind companies, whatever, it's like, whenever it comes down to a decision where it's like the environment or profit or this or profit yeah. is like, we yep. know profit is going to win. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of what scares me about it. And that's kind of when I think about 
the capitalism, I mean, I, you know, the, the day-to-day capitalism isn't what, uh, what I'm, you know, kind of what scares me. It's more that is that like, does capitalism mean we will like continue to destroy the planet, even if it's against our own individual wills, just because we're all invested in a network, um, that, that functions that way that, you know, even if, you know, it's like, well, I don't know, I like this type of computer and that company does this and this and this. And like, I'm not really aware of it, but we kind of all know in our, in our heart, like the kind of the bigger the company is, the, the more likely it is to participate in some way in, you know, things that we would consider greed. Yeah. Greed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, um, this quote, uh, recently, I think, um, uh, played this clip, uh, on uh, John Oliver's show, um, where, uh, Donnie was saying, uh, you know, the question was about the EPA and regulation and all this stuff. And, you know, he was like, we got to get rid of the EPA. They're terrible. Like they're, you know, all these, every week there's a new regulation, you know, and how bad that is for business or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. and how like, you know, we need to get rid of the EPA to clear the way for, you know, for business to basically make more profit essentially. And, you know, so it's exactly that, that sort of, uh, you know, juxtaposition there, environment versus, you know, profit. And, you know, the, the, uh, interviewer said something like, well, you know, who will uh, protect the environment? And uh, Donnie said something like, you know, oh, you can keep a little bit. You know, we're going to keep a little bit of the environment. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, like over here, we're going to put a little piece of sign yeah. over here, you know, and just put a little fence around it or something. And like the rest of it is just free game to just, you know, des- desecrate. But, you know, it's, I mean, it occurs to me that capitalism feels like um like a very like intuitively like natural system it's like you know it's it's kind of analogous to like natural selection survival of the fittest um you know but it's inherently based around the individual you know the individual's own like you know profit or loss and uh you know corporations as people and all that stuff but basically it's like all about you know survival of the fittest like one you know one among many may survive why, but we need a system that's based around like surviving, you know, all, mm-hmm. everything, all of us, you know, the collective, yeah. like, you know, we're facing now, like the possibility of like total system collapse. And, you know, we're using a system that like might help some people have an advantage over other people, but there's no system to actually ensure the survival of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I, I really believe like you know there are two possible ways to save it. One is a complete and utter change from capitalism, which is one hundred percent unlikely, and the other is to capitalize <laughs> that you know things that will help us survive and, and sort of bring them into our political system and our economic system. You know, I think like when uh, sort of policies about like carbon taxing and things like that have been floated. Um, you know, those would be great ideas. You know, I mean, it's, it's the the only way to kind of incentivize, you know, to, to make you know make it part of the profit system to not mess things up. Yeah, but I mean, at le- at, at the same time, we need some kind of more systemic change, like a much broader solution. And and you know, the, our I I think like our best hope is that uh, you know capital capitalism is like a a concentration of resources. It's like a it's a way of like. Um, you know, concentrating, focusing and applying like, you know, capital resources, whether it's like human capital or, you know, literally like, you know, money as a proxy for, for capital. And, and if you like use the system of capitalism to focus resources on really big, important problems, like maybe capitalism can be focused on, uh, you know, uh, like this, this problem of like, whether we're going to have, you know, 
life continue uh, or not. Um, and, you know, and, and like that's so like it's, we have to basically like focus capitalism on on like um, uh, like what's the word like basically disrupting itself, you know, create, yeah. like creating like, a new system in its place. I feel like the the biggest negative of capitalism is when it's interpreted in such a short sighted way. Like there's yeah. so many things kind of done under the banner of capitalism that are just incredibly detrimental and incredibly short sighted. Um, but if if there is some way to sort of bend the scope of capitalism to take a much more long view and longer perspective of the effects of uh, things on the environment and on humans, et cetera, um, it could only be a, a positive shift. Hey guys, remember that book, Stealing Fire? <laughs> well, I was actually I was thinking as <laughs> I was we about to bring it back this, to yeah. <laughs> as I was thinking about this, there is a kind of a corollary to what we're talking about, where sure. instead of like society or you know whatever, within the individual and within our psychology, there's a quote that they reference um, a Maslow quote um, in the right. neurobiology section, which says, "When all you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail," mm-hmm. and I, you know so, that conversation felt a little reminiscent of that sentiment but in the context of where they kind of bring it up in the book it's it's talking about our neurobiology and the way we are as individuals and what our tools are for dealing with our own um i don't know our own challenges and there's another quote i like in the book where it says every issue we encounter we try to solve by thinking uh and the the idea of having a system shift Uh, There's one section of the book that it stuck with me since finishing it more than others, where it talks about our ego or our psychology was trying to shift our perspective of thinking of it from an operating system, as in that is the source to think of it more as like a user interface. Yeah, I was just going to reference the same section and actually bring that conversation back around as well, because what I was saying before, too, is that I think, um, you know, the, the kind of the these experiences they they feel like they offer the key or or at least part of the key to to, to a possible solution of the, the problems we're talking about um yet and sort of what i was afraid of was well what happens when someone starts you know if it's possible to gatekeep these experiences sort of adulterate them and then bring them into sort of a new phase of a new religion that uh, instead of hocus pocus has you know a lot of technology involved in it um you know less likely i think because of the, the sort of the, the open source nature of it all but uh that, i think that's what what scared me about what we were talking about before but uh but brad yeah i think that part of the book is amazing and it just yeah starting to to think about like how little we know about what's behind the mind and how how dominated we are by it um and i think the the more work we do on our ego itself try and understand it the, the kind of the, the more the better citizen will be mm-hmm and not, not just the mind. Uh, there's another part a little earlier in the chapter that talks about where neurons exist in our body that play a role in shaping our emotion, our perception, our decision making, and how um, it's not just the mind, right? It's like in there's certain phrases like I, it, you know, I felt it in my heart, or like I had a gut instinct mm-hmm. that you, you know are actually. Oh, there's a couple statistics here that are pretty cool. Um, it says the heart has a, about 40,000 neurons that play a part in all of you know, those systems and emotions and things. Um, so 40,000 in the heart. Um, the stomach and intestines contain more than 50 million nerve cells and 100 million neurons. 
30 different neurotransmitters and 90, 90% of the body's supply of serotonin. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think all of this goes to what the quote they call it, the second brain is the, the stomach and the gut um, really kind of makes me think about the importance of kind of food and the quality of food and the types of sure. food that I'm eating. And, you know, sort of instead of just thinking like I got to be in the right mindset, it truly and about is why, like and about why you've you've needed to find a porta potty in a rush at Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that, I have to say that definitely came across. Uh, oh, uh, again, also with the other things you mentioned, I think it's also a big deal right now, sort of in neurology, that uh, you know this sort of brain gut axis, the connection between between the two, and 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 you know specifically for that reason, and and with an eye towards like improving uh, our diet. Uh, as mm-hmm. you know, as a way to like dramatically limit all of these kind of like new diseases that uh, that that seem to be increasing, uh, you know, f- from year to year almost. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to think like you're saying, Brad. There's all these uh, kind of historical um, sayings and like old wives' tales, and one just came to mind. Like if you've ever heard somebody say something like, um, you know, that maybe like giving advice to the to like a new wife or something. It's like the the shortest path to a man's heart is through his stomach stomach you know it's like <laughs> it's like it's kind of interesting to think about that because as kevin's saying like the the um you know the the gut like there's there's um yeah there's serotonin like produced in the gut and there's like nerves in the gut and that system is kind of, kind of like bypasses like the blood brain barrier and mm. you know there's like real there's like a it's a real pathway that we're like we're only just beginning to understand like in the last few years and you know, it's, it's through studying like, you know, these compounds, these experiences and applying like modern science, like we've talked about on the show in the past to, to these, these studies to, you know, that we can actually learn. There is some truth behind some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. It explains the feeling of hangry too. Doesn't it? <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Or the, but, the other one uh, that I remember always uh, like it, one day it just came to me kind of like intuitively was, you know, you're sitting in like a yoga class or. Um, you know, you're going through like a guided meditation or something and, um, you know, you're being instructed to like breathe into these different areas of the body, you know, like breathe, you know, breathe into your belly and like breathe into your now, you know, and then identifying different spaces that need uh, some attention and like there's tight muscles on your, you know, left side and your shoulder or something and, like breathe into your shoulder. That doesn't yeah, seem exactly like very it, careful not to breathe out. That's the you know. breathe out of your <laughs> stomach. Yeah. During, during yoga class. Yeah. Especially. Exactly. But really, you know, you think like it, it, my assumption, I think like hearing these things, uh, you know, from the time I remember, you know, hearing about these guided meditations and things was like that these are instructions that are kind of like an idea of something like, you know, it, like, but you're literally able to breathe into different areas. Like, you know, when you think about it, like we have the ability to send oxygen through, you know, through veins and that's like part of the, you know, what is it? The autonomic nervous system. Like you don't actually like control like where blood flows necessarily. Like you don't, we don't think we do, but we may have the ability to do that. So you could, you know, you're breathing oxygen into the lungs, which is oxygenating the blood and the blood is going to different areas of your body. So you actually can breathe into different areas, you know? Um, like that, but why don't, why isn't that a practice we learn in school? Um, yeah, you know? well, I think it, it will be, I think like the, the, the more time that goes on, like the, the more value, I mean, the fact that these practices have made their way into the business world, is probably like, you know, the, the best proof of that. Yeah. And, uh, and Brad, getting back to what you were talking about before too, about food. Uh, I remember when we were kids, 
you know, we'd kind of get the stories on the news about like how like every year about how like America was getting fatter and was like the fattest country in the world. And uh, it was sort of kind of like the the first wave of the effects of industrial food and fast food. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, well, it stops there, right? At some point that it like reaches a certain peak and that's either where it stays or it, it'll probably, you know, and now as people get healthier or like wake up to it, there's probably, you know, that's probably reversing at least. Um, however, like, I don't think, you know, then we were concerned only with people's image and sort of like the, the amount of like fat they had and we weren't thinking past that. And I feel like now, uh, you know, having lived outside the U S now for, I don't know, almost 15 years when I come back, I'm blown away by the number of allergies people have hmm. like that. Hmm. I feel like that's the new legacy of that, you know, of that, uh, trend in food. Whereas like where I live, I, I don't know anybody who has a peanut allergy. I don't know anybody who I know one person who has a gluten allergy, you know, and I just, every time I come home, I'm like this, it's like impossible to go out to eat anywhere. It's like, everybody's got allergic to something. You know, it's like, yeah, if it's not lactose, it's peanuts, it's this, it's that. It's like, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating panorama of sort of digestive problems that, uh, you know, very likely are the result of, of you know, the, those eating habits. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, where does it go from there in terms of like what kind of d- disease that produces? Those are like very, you know, flagrant signs of a problem when you just can't eat that thing anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what's happening at the level of your gut and your brain and what sort of like weird diseases are we inventing? Yeah. And I, not to kind of go back to it, but, you know, capitalism comes to mind. I, in college, I interned at a public affairs consulting firm and the one of the clients of the firm is Mars Candy Bar. And this is, you know, in the early 2000s. And at the time, uh, Sweden had just passed legislation that it was illegal to market to have any tor- sort of advertising towards a demographic of 12 years of age or younger with the theory mm-hmm. that um, advertising is meant to inform consumers and if you're advertising to children you're basically just brainwashing them they don't have resources to spend and so this big candy company are like oh shit you know if like the rest of the EU adopts a similar policy it's going to be a big hit on our business and I spent a whole semester just kind of doing obesity research and marketing research on it. And holy shit, it is scary. Like the one of the statistics I remember, you know, like 20 years later, is that our generation growing up in the United States, uh, 80% of the commercials that we saw that were part of kids TV programming is for food. And it wasn't just food, wow. it was like cereal, fruit roll-ups, like just the shittiest food you can imagine, just pure sugar, like just toxic stuff. And it's well, no wonder that, you know, we've had a whole generational shift, um, you know, because of that. Yeah. Well, and also you look into like the, the changing like family structure too. I mean, you think about like, you know, back in the day, like a two parent family sort of like meals being prepared at home all the time. And, um, you know, you know, how difficult, you know, even, even when that structure begins to change, I think it's still difficult. You can, you can provide, you know, the market can provide sort of like convenient solutions for people, but it's hard to get somebody to change their eating habits so dramatically. So like the, just like you're saying, you know, it doesn't surprise me that 80% of the commercials, it's like, it requires an, a massive marketing operation to so dramatically change people's, uh, habits. Um, especially <laughs> I, I'm shocked to around like the taste factor, you know, it's like once, 
and I grew up as a, as a child of that generation. Like I definitely ate a lot of crap because my parents were divorced and because I had, uh, I just didn't have someone at home that prepared food in any way. And once I got out of that and psychedelics were a definite part of helping me get out of that, I'm, I'm amazed that, uh, you know, sort of going back, like if I drink, I don't know if, if I try something, so one of those foods now it's, it tastes so bad. Yeah, specifically for that reason, because of the sugar and everything, and it requires no discipline not to eat that food. Mm-hmm. But like, if you've been brainwashed into it since you were a kid, it's really hard to get out of it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and it's largely just a, sh- a sugar addiction too. You know, you can be brainwashed mm. into like wanting something, and then when you eat it, and it has tons of sugar, it's just it's just an addiction. You know. Yeah. It, it's kind of uh, baffling yep. that we haven't really acknowledged. Like, you know, we call it a sugar addiction, but I don't think people really internalize it truly as like an actual addiction to a drug you know Mm -hmm. but that's that's what it is remember you guys joe and some other friends in high school used to make i had like a serious coca-cola addiction that these guys used to rip on me relentlessly for but i mean i remember drinking like you know basically a two liter bottle every day which is just the worst thing you can do yourself. How, we, and, we should look up how much sugar is in a two-liter bottle of Coke. <laughs> yeah, how are you alive? Also, right. Yeah, I've, yeah. I don't. I don't. I really don't know. And apart from like what the the, the job it must have done, like every other, you know, my like digestive tract and everything else. But like, but the remarkable thing now is like, uh, and I remember years where like I couldn't, like it was so difficult not to drink it. Like and I was doing it purely on discipline for like a really long time. And now like it, it just takes that long to get out of it. And now it's like, un, it's inconceivable. It's like I never, ever tempted to drink Coke. There's Coke a Coke is my favorite hangover cure. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> a nice ice cold, like fizzy glass of. That's true. It has its, it has its moment. All right. So, so in two, in, <laughs> in two liters of Coke, by t- at least today, <laughs> 216 grams of sugar. That's how am I not diabetic? Terrible That's amount of sugar. And it's so then I looked it up. How many teaspoons is that? And it's 54 teaspoons. Of Whoa! Sugar. <laughs> oh man! There was another. There was another saying, late how am show. I not, uh, how am I not diabetic? Although I do feel like my health has been incredible since then. I feel like my you know my body was able to get through like the equivalent of World War II. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Oh man. Yeah, no, this I just double checked it. Yeah, this is this is the right conversion. It's uh it's complete insanity. There's another late show recently about um like uh you know packaging, labeling and stuff and they, they, there were uh, all the uh you know advertisers were completely against um the requirement to show uh, like the content of sugar in teaspoons because people can actually like understand. Yeah. yeah. Like you just kind of like have the, like two, like 50 something teaspoons is like, you know, it's like an insane amount and you can kind of understand that. But you know, if you're talking like, you know, that each teaspoon is four grams, like four. Okay. So if you're, if you're talking like 12 grams of sugar, it doesn't sound like a lot, but three teaspoons, that's like a, if, if they had, if they had their way, all of the dietary information would be printed in Latin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would just say hocus pocus on the back. Right. <laughs> there was one part at the very end I wanted to mention as also being a very memorable quote that that's come back since finishing the book. So in the technology section, they talk about the the flow dojo and this this place where people can go to study 
you know, how to get into that state of flow. And, and, and it's really fascinating and finding triggers like somatic triggers and gravity is a really uh, big component of it. So understanding why oh, yeah. like roller coasters or skydiving or things like that, that sort of play with your sense of gravity can be really uh, impacting. But uh, it's, it's fun to, to know that there's people out there really digging into this kind of research and, and thinking about how to, in a safe way, create places that can kind of pull those neurotransmitters or push them in ways that can sort of get you into a state. Um, and it says, there's a, a part that I liked, it says embodied cognition research shows that we become more flexible and more resilient when we train our bodies and brains together and in increasingly dynamic situations. It's why the Navy SEALs say, quote, you don't ever rise to the occasion, you sink to your level of training. Yeah, that was a great quote. Yeah, Brad, it also makes me think uh, that one of the, <laughs> one of the, most uh i don't know i would say uplifting parts of the book to me was on that uh, section about how they had filmed uh some some dolphins with hidden cameras yeah that's awesome um yeah and they kind of like basically when the dolphins are not you know or feel like they're not being observed they start playing with this like puff puffer fish like blowfish getting high and and basically, yeah, basically it secretes an amount of poison that they like in a small dose gets them high and they start kind of passing it around. Um, you know, and, and then they kind of go into all the other species that will do things like this basically to get high, uh, which, you know, A, made me feel better about my own behavior. <laughs> but like B, made me also kind of fascinated about the argument they put forward after that. That's like a, kind of about um, perhaps the evolutionary advantage in doing that. Yeah. And that, yeah. that we sort of um, are in our, you know, sort of waking mind are like very rigid and very systematic and sort of doing this kind of allows us to uh, break outside of that. And perhaps that in and of itself is an advantage. Yeah. The, the quote here is, uh, researchers have been pondering this for a while now and have concluded that the intoxication does play a powerful evolutionary role, depatterning. Absolutely. Depatterning. The whole like depatterning concept also is, uh, you know, there's a part uh, just, just before that in the book that, uh, that mentions our, one of our heroes, uh, Robin Carhart Harris, and uh, sort of the work he's been doing with David Nutt and fu with using functional MRIs to uh, sort of uh, map out the psychedelic experience. And that's kind of like the great contribution of his work, right? Is that is that dis discovering that a these things don't happen in one particular place in the brain; they happen uh, sort of along a, a network, the default mode network, and sort of uh, turning that off um, is is what gives us that kind of depatterned experience, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and just to bring it back to uh, the the curiosity of gravity playing a role in inducing these states, shaking the snow globe was his uh, yeah. you know analogy for this, so. Yeah, if you think about the the experience of the g-force inside of a snow globe there's also that great story about like how they about sergey brin and how they test uh how they how they test this kind of sort of like all uh sensory experience at google mm -hmm. you the swing part you mean yeah and it, the swing part and basically about how it's you know most people will stop at sort of like you know if you were to swing on like a playground swing you'd, you'd stop at sort of like 50 degrees That'd be kind of a limit, and for you know, Bryn gets to like 180 and basically passes out, and uh, and then you know immediately wants to do it again and can, can get, <laughs> get gets it like it, like you know he le like learned on one experience like basically had to control it and wanted to do it again. 
Psychopharmacologists have spent the past few decades cataloging the consciousness-altering techniques of animals in the wild, and they have found plenty to document. Dogs lick toads for the buzz. <laughs> Horses go crazy for loco weed. Goats gobble magic mushrooms. <laughs> Which I think that's probably the funniest idea, like goats. <laughs> Just goats in general. Goats gobbling well, magic yeah. mushrooms. It, it that's why their eyes look like that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's an expression in Spanish. When someone's crazy in Spanish, they say he's like a goat. And I like I didn't I did, kind of didn't get that expression <laughs> in the beginning. I'm like, what? Like goat? Like what? I mean, you know, and that's also like people he, uh, here are like much more connected sort of like agriculture and farming and stuff. So like, you know, I was just like, oh, maybe, I don't know, maybe goats are like crazy with other animals. And then like, you know, I was hiking one day and we came across a pasture and a goat came up to me and I was looking at it straight in the face. And I was like, I just cracked up. I'm like, now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> just go. If you haven't looked at a goat, go look at a goat straight in the face. Like it's like, you know. They definitely give the impression that they're insane. Well, there's also some amazing YouTube videos of goats, like, uh, what do they call it, like braying or something? But like, they're just, they're or bleeding or, or whatever, but they're making these like sounds like people yelling and it's, and they sound very human. It's, it's yeah. really weird. It's just a really trippy, really weird, like genre of YouTube video to watch goats, uh, goats yelling <laughs> like humans. And then, and then, and then goats this? are obviously like connected to the whole, like, you know, kind of, uh, spiritual anthology too. Right. I mean, like Pan was a goat, right? Was like, Can we a... close this episode with the sound of goats? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's our, that's like all our, our alternative to communion bells. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Everyone take your dose now and listen to the goats. <laughs> Birds chew marijuana seeds, cats enjoy catnip, wallabies ravage poppy fields, reindeer indulge fly agaric mushrooms, baboons prefer iboga, sheep delight in hallucinogenic lichen, and elephants get drunk on fermented fruit, although they've also been known to raid breweries. <laughs> I think this is all uh, pretty amazing. But um, That's awesome. We're amongst well, good company, guys. Yes. We're amongst good company. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, yeah. man, if it's good enough for a baboon... Time to lick the toads. Yeah. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Support us on Patreon with a small monthly contribution to help keep the show going. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. And thanks for listening.